Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening. This is the one year anniversary of the Organic Wine Podcast, more or less. So I wanted to offer you a retrospective and an honestly introspective look at what creating and producing this podcast over the last year has taught me. So buckle up, you're in for a bumpy episode. In his book, The Unsettling of America, Wendell Berry says, we now have more people using the land that is living from it and fewer thinking about it than ever before. We are eating thoughtlessly as no other society has ever been able to do. We are eating, drawing our lives out of our land thoughtlessly. It is a crisis of culture. I really started the Organic Wine Podcast in response to this crisis of culture because we drink from the land as thoughtlessly as we eat from the land. When I started this podcast though, I thought organic was the solution. I wasn't completely wrong, but I've learned that it's just the first step of a long journey. What I was right about is that it's absurd to build an agricultural system that requires the use of toxic manufactured chemicals, some of which are known to cause cancer, brain disease, liver disease, and all kinds of horrible things, and that poison the land, air, and water of the entire earth. This is still the way that 99% of agriculture in America happens today, and it has an expiration date, which seems to be ever more rapidly approaching. But it has been just as important for me to realize that with a year's worth of learning and being open to new ideas, I've gained a completely different perspective. And that's a reality about which I think it's extremely important to be honest. We can look back on ourselves from not too long ago and see a completely different person with whom we might now strongly disagree. Dogma, whether it's about how you should farm or how you should make wine or how you should save the planet, has no place in learning and growing. So the thoughts I want to share are bold, but I approach them with a lot of humility. As it turns out, I discovered this year that the wood that was used to build my home in Los Angeles came from the old growth redwood forests of the California coast as they were being cut down in the early to mid 20th century. And so the beams inside my walls may literally be older than the Roman Empire, older than Christianity, older than anything else in the city except the land itself. I also learned that we have cut down every original forest on this continent, except for about 2% of them. And we continue to cut even those down. We will never see these forests again in many, many human lifetimes, and maybe never as long as humans populate the earth. Some of the greatest, largest, and oldest beings that this world has ever produced gave their lives so that I could have this shelter. So not only is the structure of my house ancient, it is exceptionally rare and precious, as are the frames of most of the houses in my neighborhood and many other neighborhoods as well. Every day I cook and sleep and go to the bathroom and walk around blithely in an edifice that is arguably more special, more sacred, than any cathedral or temple or mosque on earth. And that has made me realize that if I truly understood where I lived, if I became less thoughtless about the world right around me, I would probably drown in meaning. In my attempt to understand the context in which I live, I've looked for a historical perspective. 
Several hundred years ago, Europeans arrived on the American continents, bringing with them agricultural ideas that resulted from, among other things, a history of warring city-state empires. It's important to understand that agricultural ideas are inextricable from and synonymous with economic and political ideas. That idea, by the way, would be the manifesto of this podcast if this podcast had a manifesto. As goes your agriculture, so goes your economic and political structure. Today, we would probably characterize the ideas those Europeans brought as human exceptionalism and capitalist imperialism. Regardless of how we characterize it, at its roots are the ideas that cause those Europeans to see the American continents and all within them as resources to be conquered and exploited for economic gain. Their main tool of exploitation was their particular form of agriculture, and their number one agricultural tool was slavery. Though that's a bit of an oversimplified history, there is a direct through line from the ideas behind that quote-unquote discovery of America to the state of affairs in the United States of America in the summer of 2020 when I started this podcast. The Black Lives Matter protests and social unrest that boiled over as a result of the murder of George Floyd, the extreme political divisions between dominant political parties, the increasingly extreme weather events and massive forest fires resulting from climate change, and a pandemic that disproportionately affected people of color and caused a breakdown of global supply chains. All of these grew out of a society built upon the ideas of human exceptionalism and capitalist imperialism, and the resulting extractive and exploitive approach to living in this world using slaves to mine nature's wealth through agriculture. There are several books I'd reference here for further reading on these topics. The Half Has Never Been Told by Edward E. Baptist is fantastic. And also Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations by David Montgomery. I say all this because I started the Organic Wine Podcast to help connect or reconnect those of us drinking wine in city-states in the 21st century with the agriculture that makes that possible. But sometime in the past year, I began to realize how deep the agriculture rabbit hole really goes. As it turns out, it goes all the way down. Let's go back to the beginning for a moment and remove the distorted lens through which the Europeans saw this land. Let's forget what we think we know and use our imaginations to see the American continents as many who called it home saw it, as Turtle Island. For more than a dozen millennia prior to European arrival, people lived on this land without needing to cut down entire forests to build their homes and create fields to grow their food and material for clothing. The forests were their home and their food and provided their clothing. This land was a land of abundance, not because it was wild and untouched as the Europeans described it, but because it was stewarded by people who saw themselves as part of it and actively tended it with the guidance of thousands of years of knowledge about it. Their agriculture was so integrated into the native ecosystems that it was invisible to the Europeans. As a reference, two great books that I'd highly recommend are Tending the Wild by M. Cat Anderson and Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Both honestly should be required reading for all Americans. In the beginning, I'm sure the original people made mistakes too, and I don't want to romanticize anyone's history. The fossil records show a disappearance of megafauna in America shortly after the arrival of the first peoples. Can we infer that this human-caused extinction of multiple keystone species became a powerful lesson about the consequences of having an exploitive relationship with nature? 
Was this mistake and others like it internalized into the worldview that resulted in a more harmonious way of living in the world? Are we paying attention to the mistakes we're making and reacting accordingly? Do we have enough time to continue to make mistakes at the rate and scale we're currently making them? There are a lot of great questions to explore here, but for now, suffice it to say that instead of respecting the native peoples enough to learn from them how to thrive alongside them on this land, the first Europeans imposed their own worldview upon Turtle Island. That worldview didn't, for the most part, see Turtle Island as a home, but as a beast to be skinned and sent back home to Europe to trade for gold. But can we re-see this land with the vision of those who inhabited it and learned to live abundantly in it for thousands of years? It is extremely difficult to unlearn the way you've been taught to see the world since the day you were born. Every aspect of our culture, from the homes we live in to the vehicles we drive and the roads we drive them on, the foods we eat and the way we get those foods, the infrastructure that provides our water and energy and entertainment and information, Every invisible aspect of our lives teaches us to regard, or actually disregard, the natural world in specific ways. Also, the first Europeans killed so many of those original inhabitants of this land after stealing it from them, that much of that thousands of years of knowledge was destroyed, and so to implement it means first doing the long hard work of rediscovering that knowledge through generations of intimacy with the land and the remaining people who carry what's left of that knowledge. And so while eliminating harmful chemicals from agriculture is important and necessary for our health and survival, the only real solution is to re-envision the way we do agriculture, which is to say everything. You cannot have a culture that is based on automated, extractive, mass-scale monocultures in areas adapted over millennia to be managed forest and grassland and wetland ecosystems, and then just replace chemical sprays and fertilizers with cinnamon oil and compost and expect everything to be okay. The problems are much more fundamental, and the solutions are much more complex. The first step is that we have to stop doing what we're doing, but after stopping, we need to figure out how to live by continually renewing entire diverse ecosystems. So the Organic Wine Podcast should probably be renamed the Ecological Wine Podcast because ecology is really the word of the decade. Ecology is the attempt to understand the relationships of organisms to one another and to their physical surroundings. It's about relationships, the connections between all things. The most important relationship that was eliminated at the foundation of our current culture is the relationship between us humans and the earth itself. When you see yourself as separate from nature, you will soon see yourself as better than nature. And when you see yourself as better than nature, you will soon see yourself as better than other natural beings. And then you will soon be able to enslave and kill them without realizing that you are killing yourself. So regenerative agriculture must begin with restoring the relationship that we have with the earth, with nature, and therefore with all of its human and non-human participants. The entire world is an interdependent ecosystem that we are an extremely influential part of, and we have ignored that to our detriment. And look, I know the Europeans have been the bad guys of this story so far, and of course there's good reason for that, but the evidence suggests that the European colonizer's way of thinking can come from anywhere. And often it's the kind of thinking that leads to amassing power in city-state empires rather than creating communally supportive and egalitarian societies. So it's kind of a self-reinforcing form of thinking. And we know that slavery was part of some cultures in the Americas even before Europeans ever arrived. In his book, 
guns, germs, and steel, Jared Diamond makes the important argument that European global domination had nothing to do with the Europeans being superior in character or intelligence, but merely by the luck of geography that over time gave them the decisive advantage in conflict with other cultures who were more geographically challenged. The reverse of that hypothesis would therefore seem also to be true, that given enough time and similar geographic advantages, any culture, including the first peoples of the Americas, might have set out in boats across the oceans to conquer and exploit other lands. Put another way, I wouldn't be surprised to find that there were Europeans who stayed home and had no desire to go on capitalistic adventures to far-off places, nor to invest their own capital in such imperialistic enterprises and even actively opposed them because they had a respect and appreciation for the land on which they lived. It's just that their stories don't get told. The story of the peaceful being who lives a humble life on the land almost never gets told, but it's a real and valid and necessary story. Put another way, the problems that we are trying to solve can't be blamed on any one culture because they are inside us, in our nature as humans. The Shire is in our hearts, but so is Mordor. And the battle for Middle-earth takes place inside us with every action we take. And all of this actually is important background to the way that we think about and talk about and make and consume wine. Because most of the viticulture that is practiced in America today, and in most places around the world, really, grows out of the ideas that came with the Europeans to this continent. A vineyard, as we think of it today, is a means to extract the greatest amount of wine wealth as possible from a given piece of land, without diminishing quality too much. Any amount of biodynamic, regenerative, organic certifications that we pursue does not change the origins of the idea of a vineyard. A vineyard can come from a different way of thinking, and it needs to, not based on a desire for profit, but based on a desire for health, the health of the land, and the health of all who live from that land. Yes, the reseeing that I'm talking about is pretty radical. Radical means coming from the roots, and that's where we need to start. Health begins down in the soil with the roots. The soil is a living ecosystem. Scoop up a spoonful of it, and you'll be holding more living creatures than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. The interactions and networks and relationships that happen right under our feet all the time are so astonishing as to be only describable to our limited minds as magical. And don't forget that the same is true of you. Your body is an incredible, teeming ecosystem. One of the most amazing ideas I learned this year came from doing a little research on one of my guests, Krista Scruggs. I googled the location of Krista's winery, zoomed in on a map, discovered a park, linked to pictures taken at the park, and voila, I found a photo, which was of an information sign with the following message. Quote, what is an individual? Identity is a process, not an object. All earth life is connected through a common ancestry. Each quote-unquote individual, each organism, cow, beetle, daisy, human, vine, is actually a consortium of transformed and still living other beings. End quote. The you that you think of as you is actually an ongoing process, not a fixed thing just like a vine, just like the soil. So there's much that we have to learn from looking at these other life processes. A grapevine will use as much as 30% of its energy to feed the soil that sustains its life. The vine takes carbon from the air, converts it to sugary treats, and exudes those treats through its roots into the soil to feed the life of the soil that sustains it, informs it, and strengthens it. 
These beings, these ecosystems we call vines, have lived for millions of years. By learning how to survive while staying in one place and learning how to convert thin air into food, and then sharing some of it with their underground neighbors who in turn share resources with the vine. We think of the root as the part of the vine where it takes what it needs from the soil, but the root is where the plant gives. At the root of the vine, at its very foundation, is a system of giving and sharing and networking. These vines should not be our crops, they should be our teachers. How much of our resources do we use to feed the soil that sustains us? I think I know what you're saying. You're saying, yeah, but what can we do? This is the world we live in. This is the world that we've inherited. And it's impossible to roll back the last 500 or more years of history. Well, that's a great question. If nothing else, I hope this podcast leads to more great questions and more thoughtfulness as we go about our daily lives. One suggestion I have, though, is follow the example of the grapevine feed a system of life that feeds you grow something that you then eat start with basil in your window or a tomato plant on your balcony get your hands in some dirt learn the magic trick that is patience by watching a plant grow from seed out of dirt that you water observe it and see the way it grows see the real time that it takes then eat it and taste it realize how much more you appreciate something that you've nourished that in turn nourishes you. Then think about how many tomatoes is required to feed just you for a single year. Think of the ketchup, pasta sauce, salads, barbecue sauce, soups, pizza, slices on burgers, and much more that you eat in a single year. Now multiply that in your mind by everyone who eats this way. Where do all those tomatoes come from? Where do they grow? How are they tended? Think of all the space and energy and soil fertility that is required to grow and harvest and process and preserve and ship and refrigerate all of those fruits of the earth in order for us all to have these delicious foods year-round. I wouldn't presume to tell anyone how to act, but I can say personally that after a year of asking questions of thoughtful people, simply through the lens of wine, I've learned how little I actually know about the world and that I have a huge amount of learning to do. And rather than making the world seem smaller and less wondrous, using science to begin to discover how ecological systems work is actually mind-boggling. Simply trying to understand the chemistry involved in how a grapevine uses photosynthesis to turn the light from a star that is 94 million miles away and the invisible gases of the air into itself is awe-inspiring. And then to think that we can drink that in the form of wine makes every sip into a cosmic epiphany. Now, I know some of what I said may lead you to think I've been making an argument against humans, against us exerting our influence over nature. I want to make it clear that one of the things I've learned is that even talking about these things with the English language is limiting. When I use the word nature and then talk about our influence over it, there is a fallacy implicit in the language itself. Nature is not something out there that humans are destroying. We are nature, along with everything else. If we harm or nurture nature, we harm or nurture ourselves. Think about the way a hummingbird's beak fits perfectly into the flutes of the flowers of bee balm. That flower exists because hummingbirds exist, and the hummingbird exists because the bee balm exists. They evolve together as a single system of life, and to think of them as separate individuals is an amputation of the truth of their existence. The same is true 
of humans' relationship to many, many plants. They evolved and adapted to our behaviors and needs because we needed them to survive. And by learning from them how to use them to survive, we also taught them how to be more useful to us and therefore also survive. Our separateness from the grapevine is an illusion. We are not separate species. We are vita sapiens. This year I learned that the idea of wilderness or the wild as understood as a place without humans and human influence, was, to many of the first peoples of America, a bad thing. Our influence, guided by wisdom, is necessary to steward the world to its optimal potential. I wonder if that may be our true job, actually. When we do our jobs well, the whole world is our garden, and as we tend the earth, it tends us, because it is us. Based on our recent performance, though, I think the Earth may be in the process of asking HR to draw up a severance contract. So what do we do? I guess that's the question I will try to answer with every episode of this podcast. Maybe it's okay not to know what to do. Maybe it's actually good to do nothing in that case, to do no harm, and to be patient and listen and observe carefully and learn as much as possible. Maybe it's time we admit we don't have the answers and start humbly asking better questions. And if all else fails, well, trying to figure out how I can be better at my job, even if I don't have the answers and don't know what to do next, I've learned, most importantly, to be grateful. So I want to acknowledge the benefit I've received from the technology that has made audiobooks and podcasts possible. I'm a slow reader, but a fast listener, and I've benefited immensely by the shared talents, knowledge, and wisdom of many other authors and readers and creators and journalists and thinkers in this audio space. And without the amazing generosity of my guests, with their time and knowledge, there really wouldn't be an Organic Wine podcast. The greatest gift I've received from doing this podcast is the hope that comes from seeing that there are brilliant people who farm and work with extreme care for the world and much thoughtfulness about their influence on it. I've been learning how to be a better asker of questions, and I don't think I really understood how difficult it is to be in that position. So I'm grateful for the patience my guests and you listeners have had as I've honed that craft. I'm still honing. Thank you so much for listening and being part of this first year of the Organic Wine Podcast. And thank you, Mother Earth, for our lives and for the responsibility of caring for you. It is an honor. Thank you. Thank you.